Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Many people have an appetite for films and television shows about organized crime. Whether it be The Godfather, The Sopranos, Goodfellas, or Scarface, the public's fascination with the mafia never ends. My guest today, however, is not a fictionalized character on screen. He's not Tony Soprano or Don Corleone, but a real-life mafioso who, by his own admission, committed countless atrocities. Sammy the Bull Gravano had a long and notorious career in La Cosa Nostra, the Brooklyn-based Sicilian crime family where he served as underboss to the infamous John Gotti. Yet the man who once upheld the mafia code of silence, or omerta, turned state's evidence against his own, sending Gotti and many others to prison. And now Gravano is talking, and talking and talking, on several social media platforms. I recently found that he has a podcast entitled Our Thing, detailing the exploits of his career. In its five seasons, Our Thing tells stories from Gravano's early days as a teenage gangster to how he methodically plans a killing. The stories are both disturbing and captivating. During my conversation with him, I had to remind myself that Gravano is the real thing. But first, a conversation with the man who convinced Gravano to record the podcast. Director, producer, cinematographer, and editor, James Carroll has worked on hit reality shows like Undercover Boss, and gritty documentaries about police corruption and a serial killer. He once was embedded with drug lords in the Dominican Republic while filming a documentary. Despite Carol's credentials working with dangerous subjects, sitting in a studio alongside a known assassin is still a perilous challenge. I wanted to know how he first came to work with Sammy the Bull Gravano. So I'm repped at WME. Right. And one day, 
I get a call and there's this production company that has secured Sammy the Bull. And they were like, we want you to meet Sammy at our boardroom in Beverly Hills at WME. And I said, great. Now, just so you know, I had no, I mean, I knew who Sammy the Bull was and my mom is Italian. My grandfather was, you know, Italian, but you know, I'm half Italian. I knew what Sammy was, but I never really knew who he was. So I go into the meeting and I do this with everyone that I meet. I don't want to know anything about you. I really don't read about you. I don't want to research you. I don't want to know really anything about you because what I want to do is when I meet you, I want to experience that just you and me. So I go in there and there's, you know, agents and the production companies in there and he's sitting right across from me and I'm a big guy. I'm like six, two. And I, you know, I shake his hand and we sit down and, uh, he looks at me and he's like, and I could tell he's, you know, I've been around killers at this point. I, the, the intensity I'm gravitated to and I'm comfortable with. And he says, tell me about yourself. So I start telling him, you know, about myself. Yeah. He does to you what you normally do to other people, but go ahead. Exactly. So <clears throat> I'm in the hot seat and I play along and I mentioned that my mom's Italian. And at the end, he's like, is your dad Italian? And I said, no. And he's like, well, then you're not fucking Italian, are you? And I look at him and I said, I never said I was fucking Italian, did I, Sammy? And at that moment, I think there was this connection where we instantly bonded at that sit down. He was testing you. He was. And, and he knew that what I know, I know. And what I don't know, I don't know. And I'm totally comfortable with that, you know, and that freaks people out sometimes. Right. But like that, that's just me. And we got up from that meeting. We walked around, <laughs> we walked around uh, Beverly Hills. You know, we just hit it off. And that was 2017 or 2018. It was a long time ago. The concept of the meeting going in was he wanted to do a podcast or he didn't know he wanted to do a documentary. What did he want? So the production company was trying to sell his story as a documentary for television. Right. And they wanted me to be a director on it. I, you know, I was interested. They wanted me, you know, whatever. Now, it gets to the point where the production company sends me over to Arizona alone right. to hang out with him. Right. I go over. I actually drive over because I was like, you know, I don't really want to be there. I want to have my own car. And I show up to his house. I walk right in. I sit down in his family room. And for the next three days, I have got, you know, I've got a notebook behind me somewhere. I'm just writing. And no recording. Story. No recording. No, no. I want to experience it. I want to feel it. I want to put it up in my head and write it out. So I'm like, you know, he tells me a tremendous amount, which, by the way, again, did not research, did not read, did not know a lot about the, the mafia, you know, just knew the headlines, whatever. But I wanted to experience what, what it was like for him. So I'm writing all this. I'm like starring all this. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like I'm sitting next to a guy who was at the table, pretty much every single table. And I love that. I love anyone who was there 
I gravitate to people like that. I gravitate to characters like that. So I'm all in on this guy. And he reminds me of my grandfather. And we develop a friendship, really. All of this happens throughout a year. It's a documentary. No, it's not a documentary. We're not going to buy it. Oh, it's a podcast. Okay, well, it's, it's a podcast here. Okay, it's a podcast over there. You know, what is it? And then COVID hits. Right. And so... Finally, it ends up with Sammy calling me, not connected to anyone at this point, solo, because they couldn't sell and nothing happened. And he's like, hey, do you want to do a podcast with me? And I said, sure. Like, I'd love that. You know, I have no problem with that. Why do you think he wanted to do that other than beyond money? There are two things that are in play here. One, he's labeled something. He has been labeled something since 1990. And... You know, I've met enough people and heard enough stories at this point in my life and career that when I meet him, I know the label, right? The label is a rat. You're a rat, you know? And I start to kind of dig and try to understand this individual who you just asked the question that I asked at the very beginning when I sat down with him, you know? How could you do this? And it took me a year to realize and figure out why. Why? The relationship that he had with Cosa Nostra. And with John. And with John. Turned in 1990 when they were locked up. When they were extracted from their club, the Ravenite, and taken to jail and stuck in this prison for one year tapes started to come out and Gotti, the relationship really, really took a a, a turn for the worse. And, you know, Sammy was hurt by that. And all of a sudden the tapes come out. Gotti is on the tapes. There's a lot of stuff that's happening behind the scenes with, you know, their relationship within prison. And then He says in the podcast, I believe in episode one, and, and, you know, we're going into season five now, so I I believe it was repeated late in season four. But he said, if it it comes down to this, if this is what Cosa Nostra is by 1990, and he's already lived such a life in it, if this is what it comes down to, the, the backstabbing, the lying, the cheating, the craziness of John Gotti, well, then fuck it. I don't want to be a part of this right. life anymore. What was it that would appeal to you about the audio-only project? I started in radio. So oh, really? I, I, yeah, I think that that's not really out there. But when I was uh, 13, I was obsessed with, with radio for some reason. This was in the mid-90s. So, you know, before the, the, the cell phone, the social, the internet. And I remember telling my parents, I was like, you know, I really want to work at a radio station. And, th- and they were like, there's absolutely no way you're going to work at a radio station. Like, you're, <laughs> you know, you're a kid. That doesn't happen until later. And I, I really stalked this one night show DJ. Uh, you know, I just called him and called him and called him, you know, in, in, a, in a way that was like weird, but also endearing because I was, you know, a kid. And I finally got my way into the station. Like, I, I was like, let me just sit in with you one day. So I like, was wow. sitting there watching him do the whole night show thing. 
And I was like, I, this is my life. Like, I love this. And, and I really didn't want to be on the radio. I wanted to do everything behind the scenes. I was like interested in, in programming music. I was interested in how it all worked. And I got a summer internship uh, when I was 15. So a couple years later. And I remember the day that my summer internship was over, I went to the GM's office. I like literally just barged right in and I said, I can't leave here. Like, I, I, there's no way that I can leave here. You just have me dust something. Like, I, don't pay me. I, I have to, like, be here. I have to be a part of this. Where were you living then? I was, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. I was born and raised in, in St. Pete, Florida. So this right. was, you know, the mid-90s. This was, you know, a hot AC station. So we were, like, playing Phil Collins and Steve Winwood and all of that stuff. And he was like, great. And what ended up happening was I, I started to really go there Monday through Friday and really work there. And, and I was homeschooled through high school. So it kind of helped out with the, you know, the scheduling. And I was fascinated by what happened when they turned off the microphone. So I picked up a video camera, not knowing anything about, I mean, just n nothing. Like I, I was like, let me just get a video camera. Let me just start filming these personalities because I was obsessed with characters and their stories. And what happened when they turned off the mic was like crazy. In what way? Well, they were just different, you know, very much robotic on, you, you know, a script was in front of you and they were like, this is the weather and blah, blah, blah. You know how they are. Mm -hmm. And when they turned off the microphone, they became authentic and I craved authenticity. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted that uh, more than anything. So I pitched a radio station down there, an idea. I was like, listen, I got a camera. I don't know anything, but let me go in there and let me start filming you guys. And what I did was, I, I and this was, now this was early 2000s. So this was before YouTube. This was before, you know, a lot of the stuff. And I would film hours and hours and hours of these radio personalities off the air I would go home with them. I would I would go to events with them. <laughs> and, and, and so now they're, really, now they're really regretting taking that kid's phone call. Yeah. yeah. You're taking okay. a shower and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> hey, what are you doing in there? Let me get in there. Let me get that shot. <laughs> so I started cutting it together. We put together a, a, a monthly video that was like seven to 10 minutes long. And we uploaded it every month on the website. And it became like, you know, it was written up in Billboard. It was in the New York Times. And that's what landed me out in Los Angeles. That's what kind of propelled me out here. And when I landed out here, they were like, what do you want to do? And or this production company. And I was like, oh, I'm a director, you know? And, and they were like, what? You're not a director. And I'm like, I'm not. And they were like, no, you're, you've got to like start as a PA. Yeah. You're Jimmy Olsen. Right. <laughs> so, so you're not I'm Superman, like, you're Jimmy Olsen. No, yeah, yeah. So they, I, I, I did not go into production. Weirdly enough, I, I was like, well, I don't want to be a PA. Like, what else do you have? And they were like, right. well, you can digitize tapes at night. So I was like, okay, that sounds good. So I worked overnights digitizing tapes for three months. And, and I, I literally was like, this is the worst decision I've ever made. This was, this is, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I went to the owner and walked right in again. And I sat in front of him and I was like, listen, I can't do this. I, you got to give me something creative or else I got to leave. And they were like, well, you got to cut a sizzle. And I was like, well, what's that? 
you know, and, and I cut a sizzle that turned into a pilot, which turned into two series of television on on A&E. And that's kind of what got my start as an editor first. Which were they? So that was a show called Obsessed, which is all about OCD. And what we did was we followed the cognitive behavioral therapy of an individual throughout the course of like 16 weeks. And again, it was you know, authentic. And, and I really enjoyed that. I, I, I loved dealing with real people. I'm, I'm so happy and fortunate that I got to do that instead of some reality show, which was not what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of your career, is that a part of it? You enlisting people to talk, is that a skill you developed? Oh, I think so. I think there's a lot, there, you know, remember, there's a lot going on behind the scenes when, when I do these projects. There's a lot happening, as you know. There's a lot of development happening. There's a lot of relationship building. There's a lot of projects that are started that are never completed because they're not financed. So I'm being put into situations where the production companies will say, hey, go take a camera and go out there and and film this guy. And I'm like, well, who is he? And he's like, well, he's a convicted killer. And I drive out by myself. And, you know, there was this one time where I was in the middle of California and it was a, a slaughterhouse. Literally, they were killing cows. And there's this you know, massive dude. And he's sitting in this shack. And I go in and there's a guy on the on the sofa. And I'm sure these guys are armed, right? But I've got a camera, you know, and, and they and, <laughs> and, and they disarms want- everyone. <laughs> Everybody calms down. Well they want me there because for some reason these guys they love when I'm there and I listen to them. Because right. it's more than just me with the camera. It's I actually am interested and I and I care about your story right, in, a, yeah. in a very human way. I'm not I'm not trying to get in there and get all the crazy stuff. I'm actually right. trying to figure you out. Tell me your story. Exactly. And I care. And they see that. You know, they they realize that. And I go in there and no one's there with me. I, I really roll a lot by myself. So I set up the camera, I set up the mic, and, and this dude's sitting in, you know, a plastic chair in the middle of this abandoned shack. And I start asking him questions. And I'm like, so what's going on, man? Like, where are we, first of all, you know? And this is by design. Halfway through the interview, you know, they start actually killing. And you, you hear the screams. Of the cattle. Yeah, and, you, and, and the right. intimidation sets in. And you're like, oh, okay, this is with intention, and this is an intimidation. In that moment, I'm like, okay, I got a, a little baby at home. You know, I have a wife, and I'm here all alone, and, and you just commit to it. Yeah. And, you, and you try not to show any fear because at the end of the day, like I said, I'm, I'm here to listen to your story. Our Thing creator and producer, James Carroll. If you love conversations with creative minds... Be sure to check out my episode with radio and podcast producer Ira Glass. I mean, this show reflects my taste, but also I have to say the taste of my coworkers. You know, like it's not just mine at this point. Like it's something that we all share, and I happen to be the front man. In that, in that way, it's different than than it was from the beginning. Like I am the front man for this thing that we make together. Like somebody who's in a band that's been playing for a long time. Hear more of my conversation with Ira Glass at heresthething.org. After the break, James Carroll shares the way the Our Thing podcast is a form of therapy 
for Gravano. And later in the program, my talk with Sammy Gravano about what it was like working with the Gambino crime family boss, John Gotti. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. James Carroll has worked with Sammy the Bull Gravano for five seasons on the Our Thing podcast. I wanted to know, in all of their time working together, if Gravano had expressed any signs of remorse. I've asked that question, and we've talked about that privately. What did he say? I don't think he has remorse. It's very much like the question I asked him when the first time, this was the first time I asked him and the only time I asked him, you know, he was telling me about a gunfight that he was in. And I was like, were you, were you scared? And he looks at me and he's like, that's a really dumb question. And to you and I, you know, that's, that's a serious question. That's a, you know, I'm scared because of whatever. And he said, you got to realize I've done this my entire life. I'm yeah. not scared. It'd be like you, you know, going into your car and driving. Are you scared when you drive? Right. right? So to ask that question to him, you know, are you remorseful or do you look back? I, I, I think he w- was extremely calculated. I think he, he made those decisions. I don't believe he makes emotional decisions. I just was wondering if because there's something about him. Do you think you function for people like this? And this is a maybe a tired question as somewhat of a therapist. Are these sessions therapy for him? Oh, I think so. I, you know, he's he's emoted in front of me, you know, on camera. And again, for some reason, I've been gifted an ability to be around individuals and for them to be extremely comfortable. So it's very much a perfect union when, when that happens. His love for Cosa Nostra is the real deal love. Like, this dude... Loved Cosa Nostra. When it worked. When it worked. 
all the way up to the end. I, I think there was a lot going on in like the late 80s. And it, John Gotti was very, very difficult as a boss. And, and he really turned the mafia into something that yeah. they were not used to. But the old, and this is what I love about these stories, the old days, the old, the, the original, like early days of Sammy the Bull in the 60s and, and early 70s, where he was around the, the gangsters of the 40s and 50s that were like, that was their heyday. Those are incredible stories and the relationships. The very thing you were there for and that you did when that was taken away, what was the point in that? It was the protection of -hmm. that group. With us, we take care of each other. We're safe. Mm -hmm. No one's ever going to hurt you. It's like NATO. Anybody Mm -hmm. that attacks you attacks us. Anybody that's your enemy is our enemy. We have your back. And in this life with us, we are going to take care of you, don't you worry. No one's going to fuck with you or your family, blah, 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 blah. And the minute that went away, the minute you couldn't rely on that, what's the point? What's the point? You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is he still in any danger? I don't think so, no. I mean, listen, I drive, I, you know, he drives me around. In You're an idiot. Car <laughs> in, in Phoenix. <laughs> so you're going to love this story. So I, it's one of the first times I'm over there. He drives, you know, a, a very four-door small compact car, okay? Right. This isn't a Lincoln or a Mercedes or whatever. Yeah. So we hop in, and he's like, you hungry? And I'm like, yeah, I'm hungry. He's like, oh, we're going to go to P.F. Chang's. So we drive, and, you know, Arizona, Phoenix area, there's, you know, obviously a lot of road, you know, a lot of lanes. And real quickly, I understand what's going on. You know, this is a man who usually was driven around, has spent a tremendous amount of time in isolation. And, you know, he was about a year and a half out at that point when I, when I first met him. And, you know, we're a little bit all over the place. We go to P.F. Chang's. We sit down. He starts telling me about, you know, hits and and everything. And and I'm like looking over and there's this, you know, poor woman who's trying to eat her spicy chicken. And she's hearing this crazy story. And, you know, she can't believe it. And I can't believe that I'm sitting here with Sammy the Bull who has the glasses on and whatever. So we get back in the car and he rolls down the window and he lights a cigarette and we drive away and we stop at this stop sign and there's this bicyclist coming up and I see the bicyclist and I'm like, oh God, you know, here we go. Right. And I, this is early on in my relationship. So I don't really have the, the back and forth that I would have with him now. So he starts to go and then the bicyclist, is like, oh, you know, and he slams on his brakes and the bicyclist turns around and I mean, the guy had no clue who he was dealing with. Yeah. And it's like, you know, fuck you, man. You know, whatever, whatever. And Sammy's like, fuck me, fuck you, you know, and, and really just starts to scream at him. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit, like, fuck, man, I'm going to be involved in, I don't know what's going to happen. He's going to get out and guy. beat him. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to run over him. I don't know what's happening. Right. So the guy drives away and he won't let it go. Yeah. Right. He's talking about it that night. He's talking about it the next day. And to this day, we still talk about the guy in the bicyclist. My last question for you is, there's more square mileage here for you to explore with him. You're doing another season or are you kind of is it winding down in terms of what he has to offer? With me, I think it's it's winding down. I'm still a part of it. I still help him. Really, no one else touched the project except Sammy and myself. It's very rare that this happens, and you know this. It's like usually there's producers weighing in and whoever yeah. is the money person. and sure. like, But it was just really just Sammy and I. I would send the cuts to Sammy, and Sammy's extremely smart when it comes to, like, storytelling. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to what's good and what's not. He has taste, which I believe that you can't be taught. You have to be born with. So I believe that now there's new things that he's going to be doing, and I think it's exciting for him, and I'm, and I'm excited for him. But I think for, for me, I ran you know, the mileage. I, I got the information. I'm very happy with how the podcast turned out. What have you learned? What'd you learn from him? You know, I, I love to romanticize about things. I, I love that. You know, I sit there and I think about things and I think, oh, this is the type of person he is. Or this is, the, this is what I want to do with him. You know, I want to- the knights of the round table. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, yeah. I, just, I, I just romanticize about it. And I think because I'm putting it through my filter, which is like, I'm a certain way and I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I love emotion and I love depth and I love authenticity. And when I first started the project, I was like, oh, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to get what's there. But I found out that there's nothing there. And that's okay. That's the type of person he is. And people are that way. There are people out there that are that way. He's that type of creature. He is. And, you know, at the end of the day... I have spent, what, four or five years with him now. We, we, we talk on the phone. You know, he calls me up. We have personal conversations. I know his family. He knows my family. So, you know, there's that. But at the end of the day, he is that person, and that's it, period. Yeah. Man, this podcast, we couldn't stop listening. We couldn't believe it. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Alec. Thank you very much. Our Thing creator, James Carroll. Sammy Gravano was convicted for his participation in 19 murders, including his role in the 1985 hit on the then-head of the Gambino crime family, Paul Castellano. Gravano worked as underboss to John Gotti before serving time alongside Gotti in prison until he cut a plea deal. He testified as a government witness against Gotti and 30 other mobsters. Gravano was released early and entered the witness protection program, which he left after less than a year. It seems the pull of a life of crime was inescapable as Gravano returned to prison in 2000 for running an ecstasy drug ring. He was released in 2017 and started telling his story on the Our Thing podcast just a few years later. Gravano grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, born to Sicilian immigrants. Since he was still a teenager when he entered the life, I was curious to learn about his relationship with his parents and what they knew about his activities. I was uh, in my 30s. I was only a made guy. They never knew that. But they were hardworking people. They worked 10, 12 hours a day. My mother was a seamstress. My father was a painter. And then they opened up a small little dress factory and he went in and worked with her. And they worked hard their whole life. They didn't have a lot of money, but whatever they had was always shared with the family, a dinner or this or that or the other thing. They bought a small little house in Lake Ronkonkoma in Long Island. And uh, it was always all the uncles and cousins and everybody there. Back when that was the boondocks. Yeah, but that was definitely the boondocks. Quiet out there then. Yeah, yeah, now it's probably all crowded. But yeah, yeah, so they, they were like that. They were great, legitimate people. I mean, but uh, I was always in trouble. I was always the black sheep. By the time I went into the military, I was 19. I got drafted during the Vietnam War. They had retired and moved to Long Island. Then they moved back 
into Staten Island. They passed away and uh, living in Staten Island. But uh, I wish I could have spent a lot of more time with my father, going, just simple things, going to a baseball game or something like that, or go fishing. He was originally, yeah. in Italy, he was a fisherman. So going fishing with him was, you know, like a big thing. And I really didn't give them any money. I didn't have anything while they were, you know, working until they got very old. Then I took care of them as best as I could, but they didn't need it. They had their retirement money, very small appetite to do anything. They were up in age, they were sickly, but I was always there to take care of them, connections with doctors, whatever I could possibly do. They never asked me where I got money or did anything because I really, when they were alive, I didn't have big money. It, m big money started flowing, you know, during their real old age, sick, right. and passed away. Right. I was in three mafia wars, and I planned and plotted in two of them. I started off in the Colombo family. There was two parts to it. The Profaci and uh, the Gallos, everybody went to prison. It stopped when Crazy Joe Gallo came out. The second part started. I was already with the Colombo people. I did already work, meaning a murder. I was eventually transferred over to the Gambino family. And uh, in the Gambino family, when uh, Angelo Bruno was killed in Philadelphia. There was a war broke out. I listened to the story on the podcast. Yeah. The guy you took out to the golf club. Yes, Johnny Keys. So right. they couldn't, five families and the Philadelphia family couldn't kill him. And I wound up getting the hit and I wound up killing them. It was a commission hit. It's, it's at the highest level. And then I, I controlled the whole Castellano hit. I did the planning and the plotting and I was on the hit. John Gotti was in the car next to me. He was my driver. I had the walkie-talkie, and I controlled 11 people who were on the hit. Now, Johnny Keys, in the podcast, you tell that story. He was old school, and he was, he was like teaching you in the car to do the hit, not get caught. You, you felt this admiration for him, and you thought he was this great old school guy. Right. But at the same time, he did the hit without the approval of the commission, correct? You were ordered to kill him because he broke the rules, correct? Well, he didn't actually do the hit, I mean, on Angelo Bruno. Right. That, that was all bullshit. He was actually Angelo Bruno's cousin. He was fighting the other side. I mean, we really, it was their problem, their thing. And you know what, like you said, uh, he was, you know, telling me how to do the hit on himself. And I, I came to learn now that I'm writing is that we were like two samurais. We were boat hit guys. He was a lot better, older, smarter, wiser than me. And we met on the battlefield. And what happened is when he was in that van, he knew he lost. He knew I did something that the whole six families couldn't do. And he had a respect for me. And uh, he actually was educating me and teaching me goes in Austria knowing he was going to die. But if you know about samurais, when they lose, they want to die. But they want to die in an honorable way, whether they with put... With my shoes off. Yes. Well, with him, it was his shoes off. He was sending a message to his wife. Who would do that at 70 years old? I mean, he blew me away with things he wanted. 
But I understood it later on when it was explained. I became Gozenosha mostly because of him in a way that I wasn't before. So the door to my life closed on that hit. You went to prison twice or three times? Uh, I went lengthy times. I, I went a bunch of times, but I went in 1990. I got a five-year bit, the thing with John Gotti, and I cooperated. The second time I went to prison, I got a 20-year bit. I did uh, almost 18 years straight. So you do 18 years straight. And you'd already testified. Yeah. You'd already left witness protection, correct? Yeah, I was only in the witness protection for eight months. Why did you want to get out of witness protection? Well, I wanted no part of it. I had money when I got out of prison. I wanted no part of the witness protection program. You had to change your name and do things and live by certain rules. I did my time. I didn't need their help. I didn't need their money. But they wanted me bad. They said, Sammy, you got 19 murders. You got sentenced to five years. The government did the right thing with you. You're going to make them look like horseshit if you don't come in. Give them some more time. Volunteer for this program. They could pound their chest a little bit. I felt they, they did treat me right, and I did a five-year sentence. I should have did a hell of a lot more than that. So I agreed to do one year and one year only, and uh, that's what I did. And I stayed in the program. Some woman recognized me. They wanted me to start over. I wouldn't do it. So in eight months, I said, I promise you one year. I'm not starting over. And they said, you have to. And I said, well, I'm not going to. And they said, well, then you'd have to sign out. And I said, then I'm going to sign out. I promise you, I'm in eight months. I promise you a year. Four more months I'll give you. And if you don't accept that, then I quit. I'm out. And I quit. I was out. And I went to Arizona where my family was. And you weren't afraid? No. You're out of witness protection. You're viewed as somebody that turned on John. So when you go to prison for the ecstasy charges... Was that probably one of the most nerve-wracking times of your life? Because I would imagine, were you afraid they were going to get you when you were in prison? I thought they would. I mean, I'm coming in with a lot of baggage. I had a 20-year sentence. That's where all these tattoos came from. What I did is I tattooed up, and I said, as soon as somebody fucks with me, I'm going to kill them in prison. I thought I'd never get out of prison, and I would probably die in prison. So I said, I got nothing to lose. And that's what I'm going to do. I tattooed up. I put my prison hat on. And I said, the first person who fucks with me, I'm going to kill. And that's going to push people away, thinking about coming over to me or fucking with me. But uh, it really never happened. You're doing this work. And the whole time you're doing this work, there's a whole layer of society that's out to get you. Was there a part of you that you understood that? You didn't begrudge them that they had a job to do? Did you kind of recognize that and say, hey, these guys, you know, we're breaking the law, and they got to do what they got to do? Or did you think all of them were the enemy? No, no. Yeah, listen, I, I dealt with a lot of agents on a constant basis. I got to know their names and who they were. I saw them every day watching. And um, they were legit. In other words, they had a job. And I didn't, you know, to catch us, we had a job is to get away. And uh, as long as they told the truth, I don't begrudge them. It's people who lied about people, made up lies and did all kinds of bullshit that I hated them. But 
After I cooperated, I got to know them. I actually lived with them for years. I was in Quantico, a, a military base, for months and months and months. I lived with them every day of the week, and I got to know a lot of them. I got to trust them. Like Frankie Pentangeli? Yes. Now, beyond the ones that were handling you, if you will, when you testified and so forth, during your career, when you're out and you're younger, when you're a made guy, and there's a lot of money on the line, I would assume you wanted the cops to cooperate with you, or there were times when it would be helpful if the cops cooperated with you. And you didn't want to get that wrong, meaning you didn't want to go after a guy and make a play on a cop or somebody, and you didn't know if he was going to cooperate with you. Meaning, was there a tell? Was there a tell you would see that would tell you that a cop was ready to come over and he was dirty and he would, he would cooperate with you? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it became obvious. You kind of distinguished the difference like this guy, Frank and Maddie, they used to call them the twins. You saw one, you saw the other. I saw them all the time. One time, Christmas time, I came to my office and my secretary was there. It was snowing, it was cold. And she said that Frank and Maddie are out there watching. She even knew their name. We knew their names and everything. So uh, I said, how long were they out there? She said, quite a while. So I got a box, cardboard box. I got some coffee, I got cookies, all kinds of cannolis, everything. And I put a box full of stuff. I went out, I walked to the car in the snow, knocked on the window and said, bro, you guys don't ever go home? And said, this is our job. I said, here's a box of uh, cookies and coffee and stuff like that. So they said, no, we can't take that. I said, listen, it's not a bribe. It's cookies, bro. It's, I know you're not going to do nothing for So take the fucking cookies. They took the cookies. And uh, when I flipped, those are the guys I actually flipped with. Now, John Gotti, did you think he was a good boss ever? No, he wasn't a good boss. He's not an actor. We're not actors. We're gangsters. It's a secret society and a brotherhood. Let me give you a little Carlo Gambino. When he came in a room in the restaurant, all you did was look eye to eye and give a slight nod of the head, and that's your saying hello. You don't go give him a bottle of champagne, you don't wave, hey, Carlo, we don't do that. So what he did is he exposed all of Gozanostra. When I cooperated, I was living with the government. The government loved him. What he did was gave up the whole mafia on a silver platter. On his ego, he was a narcissist who put on this show. He bought into the whole Dapper Don thing. Without a doubt, if he knew yeah. what reporter was gonna say, call him the Dapper Don, the reporter could have called him up and said, listen, I'm gonna do an article, I'm gonna call you the Dapper Don. He would have got 100,000. <laughs> <laughs> who did you think was good? Who's someone else in organized crime that you really admired? Frankie DeChico. He was like a big brother to me. And uh, when John and his crew were in trouble for dealing drugs, they were going to get taken out. They came to me and Frankie DeChico and a guy named Joe Piney, a few people, for help to be in this war. Without us, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't live. When I talked to Frankie DeChico about it, I didn't want to be in that war. And I told Frankie, well, if we're going to be in it, I want you to be the boss. He said, I could be his underboss, 
he can't be mine. He's got an ego like the Empire State Building. We'll have nothing but trouble. Let him, we'll take over. Let him be the boss, we'll be the power behind the throne. If he doesn't act right, I give you my word, we'll kill him. I'll be the boss, you'll be my underboss. I said yes. Now, I'm gonna give you an example of Frank and Chico, what I think of him. John had a powerful crew, no question. I had a powerful crew, no question. If you put our two crews together, we weren't a pimple on Frankie DeChico's ass. That was the real power. His whole family, women in the family, I think if you kill somebody in front of them, they'll help you move the body. So they, this, this was the real deal. His father, his uncles were made, everybody, his whole family. And people loved him. So this was the real power. He's the guy who got blown up four months after the hit. Did you ever get the impression that John's son, that John Jr. was going to try to do something to you? That he was out there trying to find you? While John was alive, I knew he would send a team down. Again, I'm a professional hit guy of mega proportions. And I waited for that team. I was armed every single day. I lived in an area and a spot that I always had the advantage. I always knew exactly what I was doing, where I was going to sit. And I was always armed. When I got pinched for the ecstasy in my house, I had four guns hidden, all of them loaded, one shotgun and three pistols, and a 357 Magnum by my side while I slept. I waited for them to come. I right. knew John would send them. They did. They found me. They sat on me for months and months and months, and they always felt like they would never be in the proper position. And one guy, Huck, who was in my crew, made guy, said, I'll guarantee you Sammy's going to have a gun. I guarantee you he won't run. And I'll guarantee you he's going to try and kill us. And he was a thousand percent right. But before they had a chance to make the move, they sat on me for months and were afraid to make the move. I got pinched for ecstasy and I went to prison and that was over. So I didn't underestimate that John would send somebody. He talked to his brother, Pete, who became the boss, a complete fucking moron. And he gave Huck and a few guys the hit, and he botched the whole thing. He didn't send the right guys. Sammy the Bull Gravano. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Sammy the Bull shares why he was the hitman the bosses relied on. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Much of the mafia on screen involves clandestine meetings over linguine and red wine. I wanted to know if, just like Tony Soprano, Sammy frequented an Italian restaurant that felt like home. Well, in Manhattan on uh, Mulberry Street, I believe it's Angelo's. That was great. It was right on Mulberry Street. It was a great restaurant, great food, great service. And me, I stayed mostly in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, I stayed in restaurants in places that really weren't all that fancy, but I went to them before I was anything, and I kind of stayed there, even though my rank or position, whatever you want to call it, increased. But you like to eat. Oh, I love to eat. You know, with Italians, everything is breaking bread. We talk, we eat. I mean, in my house with my father and them, you'd be at the table for an hour and a half. Not only would you eat the first meal, the andibasta, the pasta, this, to that. When you were done, you're drinking a little wine. You're breaking the walnuts, or you know, with the, and you're eating the nuts, fruit. fruit, stuff like that, and you conversed. It was a tie, a family tie, uniting the family and keeping it together, you know, and keeping it close. The kids would go off and run off and uh, go play in the backyard. So it was not only a mafia thing, it was an Italian thing, basically. It was part of our roots. On a tougher subject, the first time you killed somebody, and every time thereafter, was it always the same feeling, or was there a time when, you know, because a lot of it was at someone's direction. You were being ordered to do this. You were given a hit. You were given a job. Did you have to medicate yourself? To get yourself in that state to do that job, were you always in a natural state, or did you have to take a pill and take a couple of shots before you could do that? First of all, a hit to me was always in order. I never did a hit with really right. without an order. That you improvised, yeah. So it always came from the top. You're not allowed to do it without you know permission anyway. But after the first hit, and I was into it, I became a very good hit guy. One of the reasons is is that I, I was able to think. I was a thinker. I plan and plot a hit. I, I focus in, I'm going to use the word you, I'm not talking about you, but I focus mm-hmm. in on you, on everything you did, every place you went. And I would disregard my family, my friends, my business, money. Nothing meant nothing to me other than you and where I was going to kill you. I became very, very efficient at it. And that's how I was used by bosses so many different times because they knew 
that if I got your contract, you were finished. I never took drugs. The only thing I did as a kid when I, I smoked pot, but I never really took drugs. I never really drank. I didn't need any of that. And I thought that would be the worst thing you could do because that'll fuck up how you think. And that's when you're going to make a mistake. The podcast with Jim Carroll. Whose idea was that? You know, when I, when I got out of prison, I was going to write a, a second book. James Carroll came to me. He was going to do a documentary about me. And uh, he had turned around and said, oh, wow, I'd love to work with you with uh, this podcast. So I said, all right. And I said, uh, how, you, how do you think it'll... He says, I heard, you know, you talk. If you could talk like that and on a podcast, he said, you'll get 25 million hits. I started laughing. I had just got out of prison not too long ago. I said, I know I could get 10 people for sure. My ex-wife, my son, my daughter. I am not going to get 25 million people. I think as of today, we got 85 million views. Oh my God. So uh, he was right. You know, you're, you're, you're a very complicated guy. You know, one minute you take an, an omerta, a, an oath of silence. Now you got 85 million people listening to you on a podcast. You know what I mean? If Sammy Gravano then could see Sammy Gravano now, you'd be sitting there going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> hey, listen, thank you very much. I, I thank you, too. My thanks to Sammy Gravano and James Carroll. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.